Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Biography, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Chrisa Pugh at Harvard University. Today, my guest is Dr. Paul Vanderveld, who is a biographer and researcher who's written extensively on the lives of scientist P.J. Veth and travel writer Jakob Hoffner, about whom his biography will be focusing on today's conversation. In addition to biography, Dr. Vanderveld has written on a number of topics ranging from colonial and art history to articles on the province of Zealand and the Asia-Europe meeting. He served as a scientific researcher at the Institute for the History of the European Expansion and Reactions at Leiden University. And most recently, he was an editor-in-chief and head of communications at the International Institute for Asian Studies at Leiden University, a founder of the International Convention of Asia Scholars, and the executive director of the Institute for Comparative Political and Economic Institutions. Today, we'll be discussing Dr. Vanderveld's book, Life Under the Palms, The Sublime World of Anti-Colonialist Jakob Hoffner, which was published by NUS Press Singapore in 2020. In the biography, he explores the life of Jakob Gottfried Hoffner, who was one of the most popular European travel writers of the early 19th century. Dr. Vanderveld, it's a real pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. Thanks yeah, for coming. Thank you. Um, so just to start out, would you be able to just share a little bit about yourself and what is it that led you to write on Hoffner's life? Yes, I think, uh, well, you rightly remarked that I worked at the Institute for History of European Expansion and Reaction in Leiden University for about five years, at the end of the 80s, beginning of the 90s. And there, uh, a lot was, uh, there was a lot of study on, on colonialism and on imperialism. And one of the things which disturbed me a little bit is that uh, the professors at that institute said that actually Dutch imperialism didn't exist. So um, in the sense of other imperialisms, and I, I thought, well, that is complete nonsense. And I also proved that it was nonsense. And one of the ways in which I did that in a more, let's say, elegant way was by... Um, by having the books, uh, the the writings of Jakob Hafner republished in three volumes in a very serious academic uh, uh, series, and um, yeah, explaining a little bit that let's say a person at the end of the 18th century could be able to to be such, such so open to uh, other cultures uh, in comparisons to others, and also completely rejecting the colonialist, uh, colonial uh, situation in India and in South Africa. Was it, was it the first undertaking, uh, kind of serious undertaking of um, Hoffner's life and, and his, his biography that was undertaken um, when you published this volume? Yes. I mean, this writer was completely forgotten um, uh, when I started working uh, on him. It was a complete coincidence because I got into touch with uh, an Indian businessman who was in textile business and he wanted to make a movie and he asked me to write something 
about what had been written about India in the Netherlands in the 17th and 18th century. So I also I also didn't know Hafner, so I ran into him, and then I, I saw the uh, the potential of a movie because one of the his main works, uh, Travels in a Pelican, is about his uh, love relationship with the Indian dancer Mamia. So also the the Indian text uh, the Indian textile man he he thought was a good idea. So a script was written. But then he rejected the, manus- the script, so the film was never made. And I thought, this is a pity. So I started working on Hafner. First, I thought that he was a travel liar. So, so there were many travel travel liars at that time. And gradually, I started to find out that what he wrote, although it was, of course, to a, to a certain degree romanticized, was based on, on actual persons living in, in uh, India, uh, mainly in India. So that's how it all started. And then the three volumes came out. It was an exhibition. And then only later on, like after 15 years, I I thought, well, maybe now uh, it, uh, the, my Dutch biography should be, should be translated into English. And as you might have, if you have read the book, he saw, you could see that he was not particularly uh, an... Uh, person who liked the English a lot <laughs> and the English way of colonizing. So, Great. Yeah. Great. I'm, I'm really curious to know a little bit more um, if you could bring us um, into your process mm-hmm. um, in terms of, of conducting the research um, yeah. and also writing the book. I'd love to know just a little bit more about how you actually um, were able to do both of those things. Yeah. Well, um, it was, uh, you must imagine that I worked at part-time at the Institute, so I, I had time to do things in my spare time. And um, we have this, over in the Netherlands, there is this uh, enormous uh, archive of the Dutch United uh, Indi- India Company, the VOC archives in The Hague. So I was able to track his, his records as a, as a, because he was in the service of the Dutch East India Company. So I could follow his his travels and the, and uh, seeing where where he was at a certain point of time on what ships. So gradually, the idea that he was a traveler completely disappeared. Of course, uh, I also did research in, uh, for example, Ceylon, where there is also a VOC archive, and in the, in the uh, India office uh, in in uh, in London, where there is also material. Uh, on, to, to be found on uh, on Hafner, and of course this this all took quite t- some time because it's these archives are r- mostly written in 17th or 18th century Dutch, so they are uh, not very accessible. And of course, as always, you have to ve- be very careful with what uh, what is set in those uh, in in the uh, in the in the archives of the VOC because. Needless to say, they were written from the perspective of the VOC. So you will never find very revolutionary things in there. The, one good example of that is that uh, Hafner describes how a young uh, uh, slave, I don't, you don't say slave anymore, I'm, I'm convinced of that, but I go back to that time, who was uh, in South Africa, who was, uh, burnt, who was burnt to death, was burnt on the stake, and um, this um, this was actually described by Hafner, and 
this was not like really in, in the archive. There was a small note made of it, but Hafner gave a description of how this how they went about doing that. So, um, yeah, one has to be careful if one used these kind of uh, archives, needless to say. Yeah, I was really interested in that because there is a point at which in the book you talk about, um, you know, kind of being skeptical of, you know, of of some of the things that you read, um, you know, in Hofner's own own accounts. Um, and even, you know, this idea of, you know, this is something that I'm unfamiliar with, but this idea of um, of kind of false tales um, or people, I, I, um, you know, lying kind of about um, their their travels and their excursions. And so I'm wondering, how did you square or kind of how did you reconcile, um, you know, the personal writings of Hofner versus the, you know, kind of quote unquote official archive of the VOC? How did you, you know, kind of reconcile the tension if there was one between the two? Well, let's say um, the VOC is a kind of bookkeeper's institution. So they are quite uh, factual. So all the things of ships arriving on a certain date, people who were there at a certain point of time, they are quite correct. But if you look at other uh, other aspects of, of life in a society, the, they, they can be completely uh, falsified. I mean, so I didn't take them too seriously. So at the one hand, you have the tension of, well, that what you are reading, you must put question marks behind that all the time. But on the other hand, you must also accept that there are certain things which are yeah, quite factual, although... Um, for example, in terms of figures on trade and stuff like that, you're never sure also because, uh, or ne- neither, because there was a lot of uh, trade going on on the side, which yeah, which you cannot see back in uh, in in the official uh, bookkeepings of the of the VOC. And um, well, so I I made one. There was one short biography in the beginning of my research. Which was dealing mainly with the with the uh, with the factual uh, cases, um, and then later on we tried to find other sources of other writers as well who had been in in uh, at, in places where he was at the same time. So, and so you come to a kind of reconciliation, yeah. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because it's you know there's a question of you know, kind of fact and, and factual evidence, which you point to. And then there's also this question of power that you allude to as well. It's like, so even if you have, you know, theoretically, you know, kind of factual information, you know, from logbooks and whatnot, there's still the question of, well, whose perspective is being represented? You know, whose voices are being left out? Whose voices are being included? Whose voices are kind of dominating the narrative? And I think one of the brilliant things about this book is that you really... Um, show how Hafner tried to, um, you know, kind of breathe life into, um, you know, kind of the everyday common experiences of the people that he was encountering um, when he was traveling. And so um, with that said, I'm wondering if you have um, a favorite excerpt um, or passage from the book that you'd like to share. Yes, I, I really have. But first of all, we I think it's good if he says something about, let's say, the time in which he lived. I mean, because when he returned, he was uh, very uh, positive about uh, Indian culture. He mainly stayed in India uh, during uh, his stay in uh, in Asia. 
um, he was, yeah, so you must imagine he arrived there in India in a very small Dutch between brackets, the uh, uh, harbor town with very small buildings. And then he walked into the country, so to say, and then we went to Mahabalipuram, which is on the east, east coast of uh, India. And there he saw these enormous uh, buildings and constructions. And he, so he was completely overpowered with what he saw. And then coming back to the, Netherlands, to the Netherlands, he tried to yeah, um, tell his story about, yeah, about the great, great Indian culture, so to say. But they just frankly did not believe him. And that, that's because they lived in a time when they still thought that the world was created in 7000 BC and that all writings which were not in the Holy Scriptures were corruptions. Uh, so the Vedas, for example, were a, correct, a corruption of the, of the Holy Scriptures and it was high time that the Western missionaries brought back the real Vedas. So to give you an idea of how people are the majority, 99.9999% thought at that point in time. So it was very difficult for him to, uh, let's say, to talk about uh, about this. Yeah. Great. That's really helpful background. So, um, yeah. Do you want to share the passage? And I want to, yeah, of course I want to share the passage. I mean, in general, I can remark that he was, a yeah, he, his descriptions are very lively. And he, for example, also uh, introduces interviews in his book, in his books, in his uh, five uh, travel stories. So he really lets people, let people talk. So now, well, this place in the background, he was living in Sadras Patnam around uh, 1781, 1782, uh, which was a very multilingual, very multicultural um, uh, surrounding, and um, in which, let's say, central authority was very far away. I mean, Calcutta was the main town or the uh, capital, and so he... Um, so they felt, I mean, all people who were, who were living there or working there had a kind of very casual uh, um, behavior. Okay, now this is a description of, of uh, this Sadras Patnam when he... Uh, okay, it starts out as follows. A dozen young men are memorizing poems. So this plays in, in, Sadras, in Sadras Patnam. Um, sitting beside them is a group of boys reciting the alphabet, and next to them, a group of 30 toddlers calling out the first letters of the alphabet. Others are saying their timetables out loud, and a couple of advanced students are reading Puranas in a lilting voice. One listens to, to the other, and in betwixt their chants, you can hear the soft feminine voices of a couple of young Devidasis or temple dancers. The pavement swarms with beginners in the art of writing. They are seated with crossed legs and practice writing characters in the sand while shouting them out loud. In short, everybody is screaming and yelling. My morning stroll would always include a visit to the bazaar. Jugglers, soothsayers, basket makers, tattooists, and women selling color, colored glazed bangles and extremely tasty rice, pancakes, congregate here. The stalls are open for business. The merchants arrived with their, arrived with their touchstone, gold scales and bags full of cash and rupees. The word cash, by the way, is also an Indian word. 
they display their linen or other other goods, while mendicants take up their usual positions near the temple devoted to the god Ganesh. A couple of naked fakirs move about, trying to draw draws people's attention. It is around nine in the morning. Buyers and those who are just curious arrive. The market and the streets are bustling and thronging with people. Not before long, the whole street is filled with a thousand voices. Mangoes, ripe mangoes, tamarind, yellow and ripe bananas, creamy milk. Who wants creamy milk? Buffalo milk, fresh and clarified butter, pickled nuts, vegetables, arica and betel, ripe and fresh coconuts, fresh palm fruit. The screaming and yelling is beyond compare. The crying of the little children, the singing of the sannyasins with their clanging cymbals, the drums of the yogis, the hobo snake charmers, and much more of that ilk. The proud temple bull clears away through these streets, teeming with people. He grabs a mouthful of vegetables at several stalls. The merchants not only let him be, but offer him their best selections. They try to lure him because everybody feels honored when he pays them a visit. Close. Uh, end of quote. Wow, that's really incredible. And it, it's, I mean, you, you're really transported, you know, with, um, with that language. I mean, you can almost, you, you're, you feel like you're there. You can, you know, hear the sounds and almost taste the taste. So um, that's, that's really incredible. Was, I'm really curious, was, um, I know that you've also spent quite a bit of time um, in the region in South Asia, and I'm really curious, um, you know, what came first for you? Did you read these travel logs and were you inspired um, by Hafner's writings? He's, you know, these very evocative um, tales to go and travel, or had you spent time in the region and then, you know, reading these, these travel logs kind of resonated with you and made you want uh, to write about his life? Like what was, what was the kind of um, order of events there? Well, the order of events that I've been in Asia already uh, on several occasions, and this just came along when I was working at this Institute for Colonial History, and I thought this would like really uh, give another voice to uh, to to the regular, most mostly very dull ship journals and whatever you there was produced or, or articles which were written. So. It only, uh, let's say, uh, reinforced my my uh, my previous uh, my previous uh, um, ideas about uh, about the the counter voice in in uh, in the eighteenth century, and that's what I followed. And then, of course, I started working on on this, uh, which I explained earlier. I started working on the the uh, reedition of his uh, of his travel travel writings. Yeah, that's great. So it was kind of an iterative process there. Um, so I'm curious if you encountered, um, you know, as you were doing the research or as you were, you know, in the process of of writing um, this book, were were you surprised by anything um, that you found either in the archive or as you were, um, you know, kind of going through the materials and working through his life? Is there anything that you found that was particularly striking or surprising that you didn't expect? Um, yeah, first of all, I mean, I said that before. I, at first, I thought that he just had made up this whole story. But then mm-hmm. I, I gradually started to find out that he, he, he really did the things he was, he was said he said he done. He really met the people 
uh, whom uh, uh, whom he describes in uh, in his works, and he he really was on on ships which went through stormy periods. So, yeah, the I, yeah there, and if you ask if there is a, a very special thing, it was more his 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 endeavor to to bring across the idea of. Uh, other cultures being at least at the same level of the of the Western culture, not to say on a higher level than the Western culture, and that that really struck uh, strike me. Do you feel like that's um, you know is that a is that an enduring quality of um, you know is, is that something that you feel like is a lesson that we can you know in terms of extracting. Um, you know, in, in this moment of kind of, you know, de- decolonization, you know, a lot of, there's a lot of conversation about decolonization, um, about anti-colonial resistance, um, you know, acc- just not, you know, and not just across the, the global South, but I think, um, you know, more globally, I'm, I'm curious if you feel like there are lessons that we can apply, um, you know, from, from Hafner's life and the way that he lived and the way that he engaged in this region um, to, you know, our practices today. Yeah, I certainly believe that. I mean, although I do not want to become uh, someone who is um, a missionary for Hafner's works, but it's certainly a good read to see how a person, yeah, tried to uh, get into in, uh, almost he wanted to become Indian among Indians. He also found out, of course, that, that that's not possible because you are, yeah. You have been educated, or in 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 your in your home country, so to say, and then you try to move to another place. It's it's very difficult to uh, to assimilate. Uh, but he tried that, and he he did that to a high degree, I think, because he he was one of the first persons, uh, anyway, in the Netherlands or in the West, who was who uh, learned Tamil and Hindi. And he could really, and he could really do all kinds of things with poetry and stuff. And he he came back super enthusiastic about India, but nobody nobody was interested in him except for, and this is also something which must be remarked. He he came into contact with Schlegel, the the famous German philosopher of uh, romanticism and also of Indian studies in Germany. And I think at least that was the, the one person he he convinced of uh, the fact that uh, the culture of India or the Indian culture was at a higher level uh, than, than Western culture. So. Mm-hmm. And do you feel like he, um, did Hafner, you mentioned that he was the first Dutch traveler to... Um, you know, really spend time in the region and to speak, to learn to speak Tamil and Hindi. Do you feel like he inspired then, you know, was there kind of a a generation of people that came after him um, that were, you know, inspired to also do this kind of work and to travel in this way? Or did it take some time? Um, Because you said that you were, you know, it it seemed like from what you'd said earlier that he was a, a fairly obscure figure um, you know, at least in, in, when you started writing about him, and so did yeah, he's people... still he's still, he, he is uh, well, he's still not very famous, but anyway, he's now in the canon of Dutch literature. So um, uh, books have been sold, so p- 
people now, by now, uh, in certainly in certain circles, know who Hafner is and what he's been doing. But he has the disadvantage that there is another author in the Netherlands who is called Milta Tully, of whom is always said that he was a big anti anti-colonialist, while in fact he was supporting the imperial system. And so there is, is this shadow of, of Multatulius hanging over him. And it's very difficult, I, I don't know whether you have experience with it, to uh, to get somebody back to life, in a sense, uh, if he has been completely forgotten. So that's what, what I ran into. And I hope with this, with this uh, translation into English that he will find a wider audience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we, we keep you know, kind of throwing around this term anti-colonialism. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering if we could just explore that a little bit. So, um, you know, what did, what do you feel like, it, it, well, first of all, is this a term, you know, would Hafner himself have, you know, would he self-identify as an anti-colonialist or is that something that, you know, as a contemporary label, we're able to apply to him, um, you know, kind of retroactively? Um, and, and what do you feel like kind of anti-colonialism meant for Hafner during his life, what did it actually mean? Well, it uh, it it was uh, primarily uh, directed against uh, missionaries and missionary societies, which you see to this very to this very day. I lived myself in Taiwan, and there there were Mormon preachers who who were trying to convert the uh, the Chinese population, so to say. And he completely ridiculized that because he said, well, the Indians have their own religion and they're quite happy with it. And then he, he indeed ridiculized uh, all kinds of priests, so uh, Roman Catholic priests who were, who were uh, uh, whipping, whipping the, themselves and uh, everybody... Everybody was laughing. Uh, at least the local, uh, the local population was laughing about this crazy guy. And then he t- transposes that back to, uh, let's say, the Netherlands, where people were all giving money for to proselytize in 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 India, and he completely ridiculizes that. And um, this uh, biblical society or the society for the for the missionaries, they uh, did. After he published his uh, first, let's say, global anti-missionary uh, book uh, in 1907, in, uh, in 1807, he was completely um, uh, became a complete outcast in society because that that was not acceptable. But then they put in uh, they put a committee into place to to do research into what he had said, and then after he had long time after he had died they come to the conclusion that he was right and that they should listen to what he had to say so that missionaries should be better educated and, and, and so forth. But uh, in fact, he was completely against these kind of uh, activities. Right, right. Um, and what do you feel like, would you say that this kind of, you know, it, you know resistance to, you know, imperial domination to, you know, the culture of, you know, of missionaries. Um, Would you say that that was his most significant legacy or are there other aspects of his life that you can point to that have been, um, you know, just as influential um, as part of his legacy? Well, uh, apart from that, his his style of writing was, of course, uh, yeah, very revolutionary for that point of time because most of the people was, 
the, the, their style of writing was, was very dull. And uh, so you, you, you could not form an idea of what, what really, uh, how real life uh, was in, in, uh, in India at that point in time. And uh, yeah, I think his main legacy is his, in his anti-colonial stance, in which he stands in a tradition going down to Bishop de las Casas and stuff like that, uh, or uh, persons like that. And um, yeah, people still don't, anyway, in the, in the Netherlands, still don't see that he, that he was like a true anti-colonialist, but at the same time also a person who was very, was very open to other cultures. And yeah, also, there, this is a little bit um, kind of uh, uh, naughty saying, but for example, if if he would be alive nowadays, he would also not be in favor of development aid. And I don't mean um, development aid when there is a real crisis in food supplies or whatever, but the the way development aid is played out in, in the world. So mm-hmm. that's... I don't know what you think about that. But, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I'm, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think there have been a lot of, you know, comparisons to, you know, of, of um, you know, international development aid to uh, the kind of, you know, missionary, um, you know, industrial complex, if you will. So um, I can I can absolutely see parallels between um, Hafner's critique of, of, of missionaries and his day and, um, you know, a lot of the... Um, yeah, and just in terms of like the dependency that's created, um, and also just the you know this this idea of of kind of undermining the self sufficiency um, of of nations. So, yeah, and like you said, you know, um, you know, this idea of of trying to replace one religion, a dominant religion, with um, indigenous cultures and religions. It's like you know, um, you know, these spaces, you know, these cultures, these societies, um, you know, have their kind of own autonomous. Um, you know, ways of life and being. And, you know, to your point, you know, about development aid and also, um, you know, religious outreach, um, that's oftentimes threatened, you know, when a dominant culture or dominant, you know, framework of development comes in. So um, I can absolutely see those parallels. Um, going back to something that you just said about Hafner's style of writing, um, you know, I, one, one of the things that I really loved about your book um, is that you you did you know you would you would cite entire passages of his writing to really bring us into um, you know how he was thinking and then the way that he would translate um, you know those thoughts and those experiences that he was having um, on the page and so I'm really curious about um, you know do you know anything about Hafner's background in terms of how did he learn to write you know did he have formal training in writing or is this something that he um, just kind of developed organically as he was traveling? Well, um, it's clear that he made notes during, uh, during his stay in India, although those were never found. So it's not sure that he really made notes, but he, otherwise he must have had a very, very vivid memory about everything which happened in his life. So I think that it, that was based on note. But in the beginning, he, he um, although he rejected colonialism, he, he had been trading um, uh, the last two years of his stay in India. So when he came back, he had, yeah, he had some money and uh, he, he thought, well, maybe I could live from this. But then he invested them in, 
in uh, in French uh, uh, French stocks, so to say, state stocks, and that when that <laughs> that didn't that was completely worthless uh, at uh, in in a couple of years. So he had to start working, and um, he also had a family to uh, to keep up. So. Um, you know, because he married when he came back uh, in Amsterdam. Um, so at first he was a kind of pipe vendor in, in, in Amsterdam. And then he tried to come into contact with all kinds of learned societies in the Netherlands. For example, the Dutch uh, uh, Learned Society in Haarlem. And he tried to sell his written works to them. But that he was not very successful at that. So um, he started to write. He came into contact with the publisher. And he, you can see in the beginning, there are still a couple of uh, uh, handwritings uh, left over from him in, uh, in the archives. And there you see that in the beginning, it was not yet very well developed. But uh, he, he, he uh, very soon, he got, uh, got like a good and nice style of, of, of writing, which... Uh, which resounded in society because he became a very, very famous writer at the time, around the time he was dying, so to say. But nevertheless, also his works were translated in several other uh, European languages. So, yeah. Yeah, it's it's easy to see, you know, and understand why he's become such a famous writer in that regard. I mean, it's really um, almost poetic, the way that he writes. Um do you feel like, um, are there any aspects of Hoffner's life that, um, you know, that have not been explored either in, in your, not just in, in this book, in the biography, but um, in the other volumes on Hoffner's life that you've written, you and your co-author have written? Um, are there any aspects of his life that have not been explored that you feel like, um, you know, there's room to, you know, to examine and to, to, to develop um, more introspection about his life? Yeah, well, that's a question which, after 25 years of research into Hafner, is a little bit difficult for me to to answer. But uh, I mean, his, for example, his connection with uh, uh, with the uh, Romantic movement, so with this uh, German philosopher uh, um, Schlegel, it might still be a possibility to do more research about. But for the rest, I mean, I mean, there always, you know, something might pop up, like you know, that his his handwritings uh, show, come on on a, come for sale at a certain point of time. But uh, that's not uh, that's not to be expected, I think. You know, so um, there is also one other aspect which which I ran into was the big Caribbean. Uh, population in um, in London at the time, which still needs a lot of research, I think. So, um, um, some time ago, there was research done in in the southern part of England, and there it seems that twenty uh, percent had uh, uh, had uh, uh, how do you say that uh, genetic material from the Caribbean, and there was a very lively. Uh, uh, of Caribbean culture in London in the in the 18th century. So, but that is not directly related to to Hafner as such, but more or more that that let's say 
um, the influence of, of people from the Caribbean, from Africa, has always been much bigger than we think. Mm-hmm. But because there was one figure in Hafner as such, um, whom he describes, and he, he was a guy from the Caribbean, and he was seemingly extremely intelligent, and uh, also in the favor of one high uh, countess in, in England. And uh, he, he was, Hafner gives a description of him why he was in a jail in, uh, in uh, Calcutta. It was, and uh, where he still, yeah, uh, he still was, was, uh, was very much involved in, uh, in, in Indian society. So this, it gives this, this idea of, of people who move around the earth without we know that he they have moved around the earth. So it's it's mm-hmm. a kind of coincidence that Hafner gives a description of this guy who would otherwise be be, be completely forgotten. But now, fortunately, I have I've, uh, sent this material to someone in uh, in London who is studying this. So maybe in the future there will be a spin-off from uh, from yeah from our research into mm-hmm. Hafner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it just seems like there's so much material there. Um, you also sent me um, <clears throat> two articles that you've been working on. Um, the first is um, Jacob Hofner's treatise on the, the disastrous effects of missionary activities worldwide. And then the second is The World According to ja- Jakob Hofner, travel writer and anti-colonialist. I'm wondering if you could just give the listeners a preview of what is in both of these articles and have they already been published or are they still in, in, in process? Yeah. yeah well, um, as you might, as you have seen, I have published quite some books and, uh, I'm now working or it's, it's now at the publishers are working on a book called the Asian studies parade, um, which is based, uh, the title is based on a parade, which we held in, in Leiden in 2019, during the 11th edition of the International uh, Convention of Asia Scholars, of which I was co-founder and uh, long-time secretary, um, which, which for me was a kind of reflection of how uh, Asian studies, uh, of how Asian studies could fit in in a larger context of society. Uh, so all these people from all parts of the world, they walked through through the city of Leiden and also came into contact with with, uh, with the rest of the population, so to say. So no longer uh, did they move in an ivory tower, but were uh, in the streets in the streets of Leiden for a certain point of time. Um, um, so I, I I came back to this. Um, to these articles in my book. So um, there will be about 30 chap- chapters in that book. And um, this will reflect what I have been doing in the past and also uh, what I have been doing in respect to, to uh, my biographical research, uh, also of uh, P.A. Vett and, uh, and Jakob Hafner. And in those two articles, uh, I, we have been talking about this before. The one is on his... Uh, Treaties Against Missionaries and Missionary Societies, which is, let's say, the for, first global uh, essay on, uh, on, uh, on, on the negative effects of missionary work. So he not only talks about India, but also about Hawaii and uh, in, on South America, of course, and he puts it in a, in a historical uh, perspective. Uh, the other uh, article is, is uh, more or less on, on the way Hafner saw the world, 
And there was a world which was quite multicultural, I must say, and also multilingual. So he, um, in those articles, I explained that more in detail. That's great. I'm very much looking forward to those being published and hope that folks will be able to check them out. Um, so just a you know final question for you. Um, beyond... Um, you know, these two articles, I'm really curious um, what what other projects you're working on right now. Um, you know, I, I know that you're still traveling quite a bit and you have multiple interests beyond um, Hofner. And so I'm wondering um, if you could just share any projects that you're excited about that you're currently working on or things that might be in the pipeline. So as you as, as you know, I am retired, so I'm, I'm, I'm still planning on doing things, but maybe also other things. As you also remarked, I have, have been very uh, busy in my native province, and I might take a look at my native village uh, because I have been, I have written a monograph on a painter from that village uh, as well, who had worked in Indonesia in the beginning of the 20th century. So that's uh, certainly a thing I will continue to do. And in my book, uh, you will also find uh, uh, quite a few articles on the, the Asia-Europe meeting process, which started in 1996. And this was a kind of way of bringing Europe and Asia back together in a post-colonial setting. Um, this went all very well until a certain point of time, to 2011, when uh, Xi Jinping came to power and more or less halted that process. Um, so I, I have been really living in a time which was really uh, into global uh, globalization of the world and also on bringing cultures together. And now you see it, the, this trend going the other way, which to, to my regret, I must say. Hmm. Right, absolutely. Um, well, that's really important work. And um, that's just looking forward to seeing, you know, what comes of that. Um, so thank you. This has been a really, really wonderful conversation, Paul. Um, I so. And I wish you, <laughs> no, it's been really great. Um, yeah. And just wishing you all the best in your retirement. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Chrisa. So this has been a conversation with Dr. Paul Vandervelt about his book, Life Under the Palms, The Sublime World of the Anti-Colonialist Jakob Hofner. Again, I'm Chrisa Pugh of Harvard University, and this has been an episode of New Books and Biography, a channel on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening.